It always amazes me when you can get three people and three inanimate objects and create something beautiful out of it. Thank you. Let's hear it for the band again. I'm blessed. morning. How are you guys today? Just peachy. Fantastic. Uh, my name is Greg. I'm one of the leaders here, and uh, so good to be with you guys this morning. Um, how many of you guys are horror movie fans? All right. This is, I see some like, eh, like maybe one raised hand. All right. I hate horror films. Uh, they never leave you a happy ending, right? Like, the story may resolve, but there's always, almost always a cliff cliffhanger of something worse or more ominous to come. Um, but you know, it's interesting because I'm a bit of a nerd, and as I looked into horror films, and there's a reason for this, but um, as a genre, like it's kind of interesting why why they exist, right? Like it's 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 seen as a way to kind of disarm our own fears, you know, in a way so that we can address them and actually discuss them, or even just be aware that we have them. Now, I don't have any real data, but anecdotally, I, I feel like I see an increase in the use of this genre in film and in media. I mean, I see horror used as an expression in many storylines throughout Netflix shows and movies that we see in the theater. I mean, we just saw Thor Love and Thunder the other day, and I mean, Gore the God Killer is a pretty scary guy. Um, Stranger Things 4, oh my gosh, terrifying. The Tomorrow War, Doctor Strange, I mean, they leveraged the use of horror concepts um, in a way to kind of communicate their story on them. And it reveals things that, you know, the scary monsters and even scarier concepts. So while I do hate horror films, as we do, I found myself on Twitter and I discovered this hashtag four word horror stories tweet. And so I was curious, I clicked on it, and it, it, it kind of turned it into a fun game around the dinner table the other night with my family, where you come up with horror stories using only four words. All right, so, you know, what are some of the horror stories that we see? Like, the spider got away, right? I mean, that, like, shows the intent that you tried to get the spider, and then the spider got away from you, and now you don't know where it is, and that's terrifying. Or how about, that wasn't a raisin? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> um, you know, my house, salsa is pretty important. My mom is famous for her salsa. Harper came up with one. The salsa is poisonous. <laughs> um, how about it's time to vacuum? I mean, nothing brings terror into the hearts of my teenagers like chores. So as a kind of a, an icebreaker, I want you guys to pair up two or three of you guys together, and I want you to share your own four-word horror story with each other. Now, there's only two rules. Keep it four words, and keep it church-appropriate. Go ahead and meet up together. <laughs> Any good ones out there? Any ones that made you laugh? Anyone that care to share? Ben, you got one? No? Alright. Okay. Why are we talking about horror stories in the middle of church? Greg, what is your point? Let's get to it. Alright. You know, forward horror stories are kind of poke fun at our underlying anxieties. And you know what? Art mimics life, right? 
Um, there's a lot of anxiety and fear in society. We kind of see that manifest in the art that we, that we consume. The point is, we all have fears. Um, if you're like me, when we discuss current events, it's tempting to get a sense of negativity and be even downright fatalistic. Will Russia start nuclear war? Will I get sick? Or, you know, another big one. What happened to my investments? <laughs> There's a term widely used in the areas of business and finance that describe the process that um, kind of creates negative emotions about a venture. It's called FUD. Um, FUD stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Per Wikipedia, FUD defined is a propaganda tactic used in sales, marketing, public relations, politics, polling, and cults. FUD is a general strategy to influence perception by disseminating negative and dubious or false information and manifestation in a manifestation of the appeal to fear, usually used to put a competitor at a disadvantage. So if you want to invest into something like stocks or cryptocurrency, you're going to D-Y-O-R, do your own research, right? And then when you see reports, you hear rumors about a particular company that are positive, then you don't want to miss out. So you FOMO into that investment without fear because you don't want to miss out on the potential for profitability. But if you hear negativity, the fear will dissuade you from investing. And this can be a form of market manipulation. This is what FUD is. But the concept is true in other areas of our life as well, right? Especially when it pertains to faith. How do we, as a community of followers of Jesus, show that we are followers of the Almighty God and we can't even shake the anxiety in our own hearts? Are there things in your life that make you anxious? Are there things in your life that make you fearful or uncertain? Maybe that make you doubt the very existence of God himself. You see, there's a common question that brings anxiety to both the Jesus follower and those who are not. And um, it can be rephrased in a few different ways, such as, how can I believe in a God that would allow that to happen? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? If there's so much evil in the world, how can God be good? There's no good resolution to that question for many of us, and we ultimately decide, I want to believe, but fill in the blank. We sing songs like we just did, and here's my heart. You are strong, you are sure, you are life, you endure, you are good, you are always true, you are light breaking through. So how can God be those things that we see about, but X happens? Right? We look at the 24-hour news cycle, we've been inundated with national tensions, international tensions, evil in the world. We see rampant inflation, we see the stock market crashing, crypto markets crashing, possible recession coming. We see leaders in and out of the church dealing with a post-COVID reality. We see wars, rampant tribalism in society. We get a sense that the strongholds of power, what I mean by strongholds are those things that organizationally bring a sense of security power to us, things like the idea of America, democracy, traditionally accepted ideology, modern medicine, vaccines. We get a 
sense that the strongholds of the day are shifting and media is telling us to prepare for a new world order. We're experiencing a decentralization of power as organizational norms that brought order to life are now being deconstructed and we sense a shift of power and security away from us. Why can't I just have some peace? Why can't I just go to work, work at my job? Where are all the honest people these days? Where is God? And this brings us great anxiety. This leaves us feel willing, downright, fearful, uncertain, and filled with doubt. We see a decentralization of power and ideas that were once considered fringe, now given equal airtime in the age of social media, and we're left wondering where is God in the midst of this. This leads us to FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I went to dinner the other night with a coworker, and uh, I decided to ask him about his spiritual journey. And he told me he's Buddhist. This is kind of a new development in his life. I said, oh, that's interesting. Tell me why. And he said, well, with all that's going on in life, I have a lot of anxiety, and I just, I like the guided meditation. I'm like, well, what, what's, uh, what was important to you about the meditation? He says, well, it's a moment where I can try to find a little bit of peace in my life. I said, well, I, I, I agree that we're all looking for peace. I mean, I, if I wasn't a Christian, I would probably be Buddhist. Um, I, but I, but I do believe that peace can only be found in the presence of God. You see, I understand that Buddhism seeks to eliminate your desires in the pursuit of nirvana. All right, so nirvana, what is nirvana? Nirvana is a transcendent state, right? Nirvana is a place where there's no suffering, no desire, and no sense of self. God, however, seeks to fulfill our desires, to make you more truly who you were meant to be, and he who we always intended you to be. See, I think the desires that we have are a useful tool to show us maybe the unique place in life that God wants us to be useful in. And so, if you try to eliminate your desire, you're not being true to yourself. And you can't find peace by eliminating part of who you are. So he tells me, well, I, I do believe in God. I just can't get on board with how rigid the church is. I went to church in New York. It was so rigid. The reality is, my friend is looking for something with spiritual substance to bring him peace for his anxious mind. And I think we can all relate to that at some level. We want peace. We want to be able to lay our head on our pillows at night and fall into that sweet state of sleep without anxiety keeping us up. So here's the reality. I've spoken to many of us in the church here. And I've actually experienced the church to be a little more honest than forward horror stories that I see on Twitter. You see, our people here, they would probably say their forward horror story is more along the lines of my child committed suicide. Prayed, chemo didn't work. She decided to leave. School is a nightmare. I'm here, all alone. Today, I won't have an answer to every question in your head, but I promise to point you to handfuls <clears throat> that will help you in moments when it feels like God is heartless. My goal is to comfort 
you who are hurting personally, but also to provide some clarity to those who are struggling, struggling intellectually. Some of us try to get philosophical, and we try to explain our sense of God's absence as either A, He's all-powerful, or B, He's all-loving, but He can't be both. But here's the deal. If God is heartless, nothing in our life is going to change. Everything that you're experiencing right now, if you're in your own personal health, it's going to be just how it is. It's going to continue the same. But if God is something more, then you have an opportunity to rethink not just who God is, but who you are in relationship to that God. And that's the, that has the potential to change everything for us. So to begin, we need to look at John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist in the Bible is a big deal. He's mentioned in all four of the Gospels. The Gospels are the biography of Jesus. And to understand the significance, we need to understand the context. John the Baptist was ordained at a young age to be a proclaimer of the Messiah. He was going to tell people that the Savior of the world was coming to wash away the sins from every single person so that through faith and forgiveness, humanity will be reunited to God. He spent his whole adult life living in the wilderness, baptizing and proclaiming that the Messiah was coming. He says there is one who is coming ultimately to wash away the sins of us all. John the Baptist was a character. He lived in the wilderness, he ate locusts, he ate wild honey, and he wore a leather belt around his wrist. He's like that strange, quirky uncle that everyone has that makes it awkward to think that family gatherings, right? He's, he's still kind of cool enough to talk to, but he's a little, little strange. I got an uncle like that, all right? Um, my uncle Victor. I'm half Mexican, we call him Dio Victor, okay? Um, he's actually a prominent figure. He's a commissioned public artist here in San Diego. He'll tell you all about the rampant racism against Mexicans during the 70s. He was recently inducted into the U.S. National Archives for Chicano Art. But he will talk your ear off about a whole list of things that you may or may not have an interest in. He wears this weird necklace with a pouch full of some herb, I don't know what it is, and his fedora hat, and he talks about the health benefits of Mexican cuisine and tequila. All right. He's a little bit of a character. Everybody's got someone like that in their family, right? It couldn't be you, right? Um, John the Baptist is the Bible's quirky uncle. He's a big deal, and he has a massive following, okay? He's, he speaks about the Messiah all the time while he's at the Jordan River. In fact, people have asked him himself if he's the Messiah, but he's always quick to deny this. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, John says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John the Baptist is a big deal. When Jesus comes down the road, he says, this is the one I've been talking about. In Matthew 3, Jesus tells him to baptize him, but John the Baptist says, no, you need to be baptizing me. But Jesus insists, it's good and fulfilling all righteousness. As it is written, so John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and right after that happens, a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he's paved the way for us all to be united back to God. So that's the backstory. Remember that story, okay? Because then, then Jesus goes on with his ministry, and so does John. John in, in stays in the wild, he's preaching Jesus and baptizing. But then John gets into trouble. 
the Jewish figurehead king of the day is named Herod. Now, Herod married his brother's ex-wife, and that violated Old Testament law. So John the Baptist might have blasted him on Twitter, calling him out against him, okay? So, so Herod wanted to kill John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was so popular that if he was killed, there would have been riots. So he threw him into prison. And so here's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to stand, out of respect for God's word as we read this passage today. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear clothes, fine clothes are kings and palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raised. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. So what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Thank you. Please have a seat. So, John the Baptist, he's in prison, he's hearing about things going on with Jesus in the countryside around him, and he sends out his disciples to ask the question, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting, or is it somebody else? John the Baptist is having some major fun. He's having some major fear, uncertainty, and doubt. How did Jesus respond? Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is a significant moment in John the Baptist's life because remember, he was a true believer, right? All the stuff, remember, the, the, the backstory, all that he did. He heard a voice from heaven, he's baptizing, he saw Jesus, but then he gets thrown in the jail and things get hard. His life becomes full of fun, and we're not, we're not sure how long he was there before sending his disciples. But we can be sure that he's asking himself, man, is Jesus actually the one? 
Jesus, are you for real? Are you the Savior of the world? In this moment, John the Baptist doubts. He's backtracking on his belief system. Did I just waste my life pointing people to this Jesus? Is Jesus indifferent to my circumstance? Or is he just incapable of doing anything about it? To John, it doesn't matter. And he's, he, he faces the same tension that we face. Is God incapable? Is God heartless? Does God even care about my situation? I mean, remember, again, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. Right? He was arrested by Herod. And he probably thought, all right, no big deal. I'm going to get thrown into prison, but Jesus got my back, right? I'm tied with Jesus. He's the Savior of the world, and he'll probably come down like Thor, right? He'll shake his crucifix like Molnar the hammer and bust through the prison. I'll break out, and everybody will fall in awe of the raw power of God before them. But that, that didn't happen. John Baptist didn't anticipate being in jail this long. We don't know really how long he was in before sending his disciples um, to find Jesus. Um, but the scriptures allude to John the Baptist being in prison from anywhere from 10 months to like two years before he died. While he was in jail, he thought Jesus would show up, but one day turned into one month and then one year. And Jesus didn't seem to care, right? He certainly let down John the Baptist's expectation. Why would Jesus let this happen to me, his cousin? Again, John the Baptist, to John the Baptist, Jesus in that moment seemed either unloving or incapable. And I think we can relate to that. I think we all have moments in life that are really bad. And we start to wonder, if God is really loving, why would he allow this to occur? Many times, one of the worst things a well-intentioned Christian Christian can do is try to give you an empty answer, right? I know I'm guilty of this. I've told people in the midst of their trial, God won't give you more than you can handle. It's because you can handle it that you give this. See, empty phrases are toxic. They ostracize you from the real God who's there with you in the pain. They try to explain things in a way that leave you feeling more empty and farther from the answer than before. And John the Baptist can relate to what we're going through despite the tension. And thankfully, it doesn't end there for John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist also shows us what it takes to relieve the tension. In today's text, John the Baptist asks a question that makes sense in the context of the story, but it actually is the only question that has the power to determine if God is heartless or not. John the Baptist asks, are you the Messiah that we've been waiting to expecting, or should we look for for someone else? In the midst of the silence from Jesus, John asks the one question that we need to ask to navigate these moments in our life. You see, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, nothing's going to get better. But if he is, then there's the possibility that there might be more to the context of what's happening in this moment. A moment without context is misleading. If you don't have the full picture of things, you can make a conclusion that is oftentimes incorrect. This is true in medicine. A lot of you guys know that I worked in cardiac surgery as a PA. I used to work in an outpatient cardiology clinic. And we had a patient who wasn't able to be appropriately diagnosed because the history and the context of her issue 
was not considered. She came to us, a cardiology office with jaw pain. All right, she'd been struggling with jaw pain for the past three months, and she'd been in and out of the dentist for the previous two months. But they did x-rays and exams. They couldn't find why she kept having jaw pain. She ended up in our office. So when I saw her in the office, I found out that she was having jaw pain whenever she would exert herself. I'm like, well, that's kind of interesting. So I presented it to my attending cardiologist, and, and he's like, oh, I think she's having angina. Angina is, is, is a medical term for a pre-heart attack. And so he took her to the cath lab, and he discovered like an 85% blockage in one of her coronary arteries. He put in a couple of cents, and you know what? Her jaw pain resolved. Okay. Context is important, right? Context helps us identify the problem, deal with the problem, and maybe come up with a solution to that problem. The question that gives John the Baptist context in his life and in ours as well is if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah or not. Even in the midst of the pain for John, he believed that if Jesus is the Messiah, then there's a chance for hope, there's a chance for healing, a possibility for peace. But if he's not the Messiah, what I'm feeling is what I get. So for the rest of the time that we have this morning, let's look at a few truths that John the Baptist gives us so that we can know that God is loving, but also so that we have some tools to use when it's hard and when we feel like God is us. Hopefully we can use these tools when we need them so we don't lose hope when life gets difficult. But guys, here's a presupposition, all right? All of these truths that I'm going to mention are only going to be significant for you if they're under the banner Jesus is the Messiah, that he is really who he said he is. Let me say that again. All these truths are only going to be significant for you if they're under the banner Jesus is the Messiah. Truth number one. If Jesus is the Messiah, the presence of pain does not prove the absence of God. If Jesus really is who he says he is, the presence of pain does not prove his absence. A lot of us think that if God is um, wanting us to do something, then it's not going to be that hard to get it done. If he made me feel like I'm supposed to take this step, then why is it so difficult? Why is it so painful? But if your context is that Jesus is the Savior of the world, then we need to look at our pain to the context of the cross, because then Psalm 34, 18 is true. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Through this context, we can trust that even if it doesn't feel like it, we know that Jesus will not leave us. If you're a skeptic, what does that even mean it looks like? If you need to understand this, God is obsessed with drawing you near to himself. God desires more than anything that he would be known and he would know you. Jesus says that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents than 99 righteous people. This means that the level of celebration indicates the level of urgency in which he wants to know you. That God loves you so much. A lot of us can attest to not looking to than much when things are going great, right? But if you meet with someone who's really grown in their faith, they won't say it happened because life was easy or peachy, I heard this morning, right? The times when they looked to God the most are the times when things were hard, when they were falling apart, when they felt helpless. That doesn't mean that God causes terrible things in your life every single time you get your attention. 
but it means that he's going to meet you in the middle of it because if Jesus is the crucified Messiah, we don't have a God who watches us suffer. We have a God who suffers with us. We have a God who meets us in the midst of the pain. And this is why that question, is Jesus the Messiah, is the most important question you can ask. If you want further evidence, look at John the Baptist and Jesus again. The presence of pain does not prove the absence of God. Of God. For John the Baptist, the doubts in his mind don't prove the absence of God. Look what happens when Jesus finds out that one of his boys is dead. In Matthew 11, 7, as John, John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than me. He's like, I'm telling you the truth. There's no one greater than John the Baptist. And so this is why this is so significant. Because picture this. you got the disciples that John sent out to find out if Jesus is really the Messiah. And then Jesus basically tells them, yeah, tell John, yeah, I'm the Messiah. So they go back and report to John. Jesus says he's the Messiah. He says that you're the greatest person ever to live. But he didn't really tell us if he's going to come for you. What does John do? This also shows that Jesus calls him the greatest person ever to live, even after he found out that he doubted. This is something that's very important and that we all need to hear today. God does not abandon you because you doubt him. God does not leave you or abandon you because you doubt him. I would argue that doubt is, the, is not the enemy of faith. It's actually the evidence of faith because it shows that you're moving in the direction of faith and working out your faith to believe in something that you can't see, taste, or touch. But if we see, but we see that um, Jesus doesn't abandon John in his death. He doesn't say that the pain that you're experiencing is because you did something bad. But even after the death, even in the midst of the doubt, Jesus says, John, you're the greatest person that's ever lived. The presence of pain does not prove the absence of God. God can use prayer, he can use people, but he wants you, he wants to get your attention so that you know that he doesn't abandon you and he wants to go back. God is with us in the pain. And we are only moved to trust this truth if we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Truth number two. If Jesus is the Messiah, there can be a purpose for your pain. God doesn't cause pain every single time, but God can use the pain every single time. Let me say that again. God does not cause pain every single time, but God can use the pain every single time. If Jesus is the Messiah and he died on the cross and conquered the grave in three days, that's the evidence that even the most horrific of situations can be used for something good. Without the context of the cross, without Jesus as Lord and Savior of the world as your banner, our pain is final. Without Jesus, your pain is all-consuming. Your pain is who you are. Our pain has the last word in our lives. But with the gospel of Jesus, we see on display God's love in a way that's never again been replicated. One evening at home, I had a friend, Chris, come and knock on my door unannounced. When I opened the door, I was not only surprised to see him, but I was surprised to see him sobbing. He couldn't get words out. I immediately just embraced him. I didn't know what was going on. And uh, 
in between sobs, he disclosed to me my wife's been having an affair for the past two years. Um, I was shocked. Chris and his wife were pillars of the community. They were leaders with us in the church. In fact, we were part of a young marriage group. They were part of strategic planning for that group. Their influence and their impact was broad. Chris, in this moment, was in pain. He was angry. I tried praying with him, but I couldn't find the words to bring him comfort. Telling someone in pain that God has a purpose for it doesn't really help. It can kind of make you more angry. Romans 8.28 is often used in these moments, right? God works all things together for the good, for those who love God according to his purpose. That might be true, but it doesn't really help in a bad time. It promises that God is going to work it out for our good, but it doesn't promise you that you're going to like what good means, and it doesn't promise that it's going to be all good, and it doesn't mean that why is going to be answered on this side of heaven. While it's eternally true for everyone in this room, it doesn't mean that you're going to win. It doesn't mean that your divorce isn't going to happen. It doesn't mean that depression is going to go away. It doesn't mean that you're ever going to get over the death of your loved one. My friend Chris and his wife Nicole may never know the good that God uses according to his plan in that moment. You may never know. But what kept Chris from crumbling under the weight of the reality of his broken marriage? What helped him endure that restless night of pain and sleeping on the couch? For Chris, it was the context of the cross. Chris remained faithful, and God, in the midst of his pain, met him there. Chris and his wife actually eventually reconciled. They did the hard work of rebuilding trust, and now they have an amazing marriage. I think they have two kids now, three kids now. They're active in the church. Things worked out for them. We may not, we may not always have a happy ending, but it's the context of the cross that we're curious to. Let me just take a pause for a minute here, because... Um, you might be experiencing your own personal health right now. But if Jesus is the Messiah, I want you to know that if you hold on to him in the midst of your own personal health, he will carry you out of that hell. One of these days in the future, that's the hope, right? That's the point. God will grow us into that reality. Truth number three. God is just, but he's not, quote, fair. And that's a good thing. God is just, but he's not fair, and that's a good thing. There's a respected Christian philosopher named Alvin Plantinga, and he says, just because you don't know the reason doesn't mean the reason doesn't exist. Our pursuit for a reason for why something happens is what makes us think that God is not fair. We can't articulate why God is allowing something to happen, therefore we think it's unjust. But it's actually the pursuit of a reason that leads us to a fantastic answer to our question, if God is heartless. You see, the gospel doesn't tell us a reason for why something happens in our life, but what the gospel does tell us is the reason that is not the answer. That God doesn't want us. That makes clear what is not the reason that he doesn't want this. See, if Jesus is the Messiah, the cross shows us God's love on full display 
If Jesus is the Messiah, it means that he loves us so much that he died for you and he died for me. In literature, in movies, in life, the ultimate tragedy is when the worst of things happens to the best of people. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. He was the best. He was the best human in existence. The very worst of things happened to the best of humanity, right? The Son of God, fully man, fully God, became human to relate to us and all of our limitations. Not only was he without sin, that would be enough in and of itself just to say, but the Bible expounds on it. He healed the sick, he ministered to the poor, and he set people free. He loved perfectly, right? Not only did he endure an unlawful arrest and torture and beatings and execution, but he did so willingly for your sake and for mine. Not only did he endure the weight of the cross, but he also bared the full weight of all of our sin unto death, and he came back to life so that through faith in him, we can know God and be restored through his forgiveness. If Jesus is the Messiah, we can know that God is not heartless, because even when it looks like everything is dark, because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, what appears to be the most heartless thing ever done on earth was actually the most loving thing ever to occur to us. The darkest day of human history of the best person dying that sort of death actually made, was made to be the most beautiful, loving, and wonderful thing that we'd ever experience. God is not fair. That's good. If he was fair, he would give us what we deserve. If Jesus is the Messiah, then Psalm 103, 11 through 12 is true. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. You guys, how far are the heavens above the earth? Infinite, unending. That's how great his love is for us who fear him. How far is the east from the west? If I travel as far east in a straight line as I can go, I will never meet the west. And so far has he removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. We all realize at some point that life really isn't fair, and if we're honest, we're not, we're not looking for fair. We're searching desperately for hope. If Jesus is the Messiah, then you have to answer you have, you have an answer to, is God heartless? And the answer is no. He's the God who brings hope. He is the God of love. See, God, he doesn't just love you. He is love. God is not love. Love is not just something that he does. It is who he is. And that's why we celebrate communion as a church. It reminds us that he's with us. No matter what you're going through, no matter how much fun enters your life. If Jesus is the Messiah who died for us, in him we can have hope for a better day, whether in this life or the next. Is Jesus the Messiah? It's not just an important question for our dialogue today. It's the most important question that you can ask in your life. Because the way to hope is to make Jesus the Messiah. If you've never made a decision to follow Jesus, to say that you're a sinner, but God loves you so much that you were bought at a price through the blood of his son, and that just by believing in him and repenting of your sin 
and calling on his name that he would save you, if you've never done that, that's the number one thing that we want for you. If you feel he's calling you home today, you can make that decision now. If you do, let's talk. If you have questions, let's talk. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Andy. Talk to any one of our leaders. So what does it all look like? What are the optics of trusting that God is actually loving? How does my life look physically different if I have a spiritual mindset? I saw firsthand how the Church of God came to minister to my family after my father passed away. I observed my mom in grief. We would have moments of pain where we would cry. What does one say? What does one pray in those moments? The church did such a good job caring for us, meeting our needs, bringing us meals in those moments. But I remember having conversations with my mom about how do we pray to God? And, and she would tell me, like, just talk to God you know, like you're talking to me. She gave me this advice from her own experience because, see, my mom knew one thing. She knew that Jesus is the Messiah. And this context brought her through her pain. It brought my whole family through it. I don't know what you're going through. The loss of a family member, suicide, accidental death, marriage ending, health issues, cancer. Without the reality of Jesus being the Messiah, why would you think that God loves you? But if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you may not know why, but you can know that he is not heartless. He will meet you in the midst of your pain. While we were still sinners, God laid down his life for us. I can't give you an answer for why, but the answer is not because he doesn't love you. He died for you. He went to the cross for you and for me. And he wants to meet you in the pain. He wants to give you a purpose in the middle of it. He wants to give you a hope for a better day with him. He's not fair, and that's great news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the weight of your love is massive. In a world where there's pain, where there's fear, where there's uncertainty and doubt, you have chosen to give us the hope of a better future. You've chosen to give us the purpose in the midst of our pain. You help, you help us to understand that there's a greater story that builds in the context of our suffering. Thank you for not punishing us for our doubts, but rather encouraging us to work out in faith. Thank you, Lord, that through your word we can see that you are neither unloving nor incapable, but rather you have a purpose in the way that you work through the events of our lives and the events around us, and we trust you in your sovereign Thank you, Jesus, for demonstrating your love on the cross, and I pray for my brothers and sisters who are at the tipping point of belief that they would allow the inertia of truth of the gospel to tip them over into the arms of the one who will change everything for them that you, Lord, can take the most horrible experiences that we've ever had and change them into something more beautiful and meaningful than the world has ever seen. We know, Lord, that you are just, but we're grateful that you're not so fair. We're grateful that you are definitely good. We trust in you, Lord, today, in Jesus' name.